Well, the rain was falling in San Francisco last week, but somehow inside the JPN Healthcare Conference, it was sunny, or at least a lot sunnier than the gloom and doom of 2023 when biotech was in a freefall. So is the industry in for a rosy 2024, or will it be back to negativity again soon? Welcome to Care Talk, America's home for incisive debate about healthcare, business, and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the president of Walgreens Health. David, J.P. Morgan usually is the is the launching gun, the launch of sort of the the, the healthcare industry's kind of a private sector view. It it, coll- it brings together all of the biotech companies, the big pharma companies, all the healthcare services businesses, technologies. There are estimates as many as twenty thousand healthcare executives, everything from Chinese pharmaceutical distribution companies to nonprofit hospitals to high-tech companies are all converge on Union Square in San Francisco to peddle their wares, make connections, raise money, spend money, and generally talk up healthcare. What's your impression of the state of the healthcare economy post the J.P. Morgan San Francisco Jamboree? John, it actually came out as a fairly optimistic as I speak to people who were there. I wasn't actually there. Uh, people are feeling pretty positive about it. There were some deals announced. We, we mentioned one at the start of, uh, of our show last week. There were a few more that uh, happened. And I think it's actually the kind of macroeconomic factors that are really beyond the industry's control that could be a plus or a minus. The number one is really about interest rates, John. If interest rates go down, it's good for biotech, which is a long bet if they go up as they had been doing. It's bad. I don't think there's going to be a lot happening in healthcare policy this year that's going to make much of a difference. But overall, it was a reasonably sunny mood. Well, yeah, no, I, I, I was out there and I definitely felt now money people are always optimistic about investing money. So you had, again, all the private equity funds that were interested in healthcare, as well as most of the major banks and investment banks. But I think in general, uh, yeah, we should feel pretty good about. As an industry, healthcare is going to continue to grow. Now, whether it's actually delivering on value for patients is another matter. I mean, the other big theme coming out of JP Morgan is obesity is a fast and fat market that is growing really fast. And I think even more than the Lilies and the Novo Nordisks, those who, who control Ozempic and Wagovi and Monjaro, those, those transformational weight loss drugs, uh, it, it, they're, they're going to have some competition in the category. I don't know whether you read anything about that while you were yeah. sleeping through your week in Boston. John, well, the thing is, uh, you know, they say it's something like a $150 billion market. And, you know, it's made a difference. Apparently, like the whole country of, of Denmark, uh, is affected because Novo is, uh, is fat and happy. And, uh, Indianapolis, I haven't been out there. I'm not sure if you could notice a big uh, difference with Lily, but, there is, uh, you know, there's just a huge riches. It's sort of like uh, striking oil or opening up a casino or something like that. And so the other companies uh, that are in in the space, you know, in, really in pharma in general, are looking to license in uh, new products because uh, weight loss is just such a big area. And in fact, uh, it's not even exactly well known how these drugs work and if they'll work for the long term uh, or not. They're still uh, mostly injected. They're expensive. And so, yeah, there's still a lot of uh, room to go. And uh, that is uh, where a lot of the action still is, John. Well, I think I think actually we do have a pretty good idea of how they are supposed to work. 
you know, working on the agus. And perhaps we do a separate episode on that so that we can educate you, David, yeah, on, on how it works. But effectively, it is not only an appetite suppressant, but it has a lot of cardiometabolic advantages um, that are beyond the fact that people lose 10 to 20% of their excess, of their weight in total and most of their excess weight. Largely because it is it is it is satiating you. You know that word, David. It's when you're you're actually yeah. Eat, you're you're, you're, you're I, you don't feel like you need to eat anymore. But that that impact also affects addictive behaviors. Appears to around things like alcoholism. So I think we're and and it and it has an independently verified cardiometabolic positive. And where you know heart disease is the second largest killer. Or number one, probably number one in the U.S. I think these drugs are big and getting bigger. It doesn't surprise me that others are are, are, are trying to get in. Uh, the other the other thing I noticed at at in addition to the optimism and and the focus on obesity is there's a lot of talk, but not yet a lot of delivery on the applications of advanced technology and AI. Uh, you know, you've been using Chat GPT to do most of your work, David. I mean, what what yeah. did you hear about you know artificial intelligence and healthcare? John, the good thing about, you know, taking these uh, weight loss drugs is I can sit around eating bonbons and just type into chat GPT while you're, you know, out gallivanting around. And, you know, I'll talk about AI in a second. I think about these weight loss drugs, what's unclear exactly is you say, you know, you lose 15 to 20% of your excess weight. It's all your weight, including muscle. And so you have people that are now thin, but they, they can't necessarily climb the stairs. So uh, more to come before we get too excited about that hype. Now, AI is in another category. So uh, NVIDIA, uh, which looks like it could use a few more. I guess it has enough vowels in the name, but somehow it's kind of a weird name. Gave a presentation which was met with uh, as an ovation. I don't know if it was a standing ovation or a seated ovation, but they're really talking about how AI could usher in, call it, you know, digital biology, going from a science to engineering, which is sort of in inherently scalable. But David, cutting through the baloney on the talk, let's get into that, but let's give people some context here. NVIDIA is a chip maker, uh, the, the, probably the most important chip maker in AI because it makes these powerful, high-capacity chips that allow you to do massive amount of com computations. Artificial intelligence, particularly the models that are driving or, or actually substituting for your work, uh, require a lot of data and a lot of compute that in many ways would never have been capable of being calculated and deliver the results that like a chat GPT, it looks simple and it's not, it is are based on these massively powerful chips. And so it's, it's, I thought it was really interesting that a hard technology company, uh, an NVIDIA would be comparable to an Intel or a TSMC, the Taiwan semiconductor company. Uh, but, but NVIDIA has created the most powerful chips that they would be actually leaning into trying to replace basic biology. But okay, now that we understand yeah. what that is, what does that even mean, David, to kind of like, what are, what are they clapping for? Well, you know, money talks and losers uh, walk or take another shot of Ozempic. And in this case, NVIDIA actually has a $1 trillion market cap. So it rivals these, these other big players is even, even, even more so. And so there's going to be an interest in what they're doing. 
in technology, people get excited about Moore's law, which is talking about how fast the number of transistors on a chip uh, doubles and continues to do so uh, over time. And that's led to these really huge gains in, in productivity and efficiency over time. Now, in drug development, they have something else called E-Room's law, Jod. And that one you won't find in the dictionary, but that's Moore's law spelled backwards. And that's because what seems to happen is the more technology that's applied uh, and the more money uh, that's applied to drug development, the slower things go. And so there is the the excitement is about whether uh, E-Room's law could become more like Moore's law in drug development. And that's what NVIDIA is promising. Now, I think the analogy here is with high throughput screening, uh, which was maybe 20, 25 years ago, when we're going to have this huge amount of uh, productivity. The thing is, you have a lot of screening going on. It hasn't resulted in a lot more drugs on the market. And so the question is whether artificial intelligence is actually going to uh, un unblock uh, this whole process or whether it's just going to uh, move the bottleneck somewhere further along. Yeah. I mean, it's really unclear to me, David, why drugs take billions of dollars to produce. And I think my, my suspicion is that the fact that there's no real hard market for pricing, particularly in the US, which is the most important market, and we allow pharma to price what it wants, that it, there would logically be a lot of um, inefficiency built into the process. But it, it, you know, I think that the Moore's law means that your the the power of the computer basically doubles every every year or two. And it isn't if you look back over the last thirty years, it takes longer and costs more um, dramatically so in in pharmaceuticals to build drugs and in pretty much every other area of general production productivity has increased where it's kind of it's uh, it's 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 the inverse with pharma i don't know for a an industry that's got that culture of time and expense and infinite ability to price that you're going to see that kind of step change improvement i mean the promise of computing has been for the last 20 years that more computing looking at 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 more carefully and discreetly at the results of clinical trials um, and of and of at the exploration before phase one, phase two, and phase three, which are the development cycles of drugs, that you'd be able to, one would be able to, a company would be able to take that data and reformulate it and either find drug compounds or biologics that could perhaps target a different set of diseases or a subset of the people who were who were in the clinical trials, but it hasn't really worked out that way. In fact, it's Erum to your inelegant phrase. Uh, it's gone the opposite direction. You know, I think that the 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 power of AI and, and large computing may just simply be in in simplifying and reducing workflow as opposed to novel novelty and drug development. But gosh, if we could get there, it'd be amazing. John, if you look at uh, you know where technology has been useful for improving uh, productivity and maybe a comparably complex process, so look at the way the manufacturer you know they make cars and you used to have wind tunnels and you'd put a physical model in there that you you would you would set up and you'd you'd measure the drag and so on that can be simulated on a computer now. The issue with drug development is that you're not actually doing the simulation; it's not replacing clinical trials. You still need large scale clinical trials with a lot of people over a long time period. And so there's only so much productivity you're going to bring to that, especially if there is more of a focus on on safety. And if you're looking at long-term uh, results, it just takes 
a long while and and you've got uh, competition to get actually to get people into the clinical trials. So the bottleneck is, I would say, mostly elsewhere. But I mean, if people were applauding, I'm sure there is there's a lot that can be done. It's still a very inefficient uh, process. I just wouldn't expect that's gonna that's gonna make all the difference in the world. You know, John, I want to ask you about hospitals because it's supposed to be a biotech conference, but the hospitals were out there flogging their wares, and and we talk about optimism versus pessimism. Weirdly, when I hear hospitals talk in the uh, you know outside of the bubble, it's all negativity. They're losing money. They don't have. They don't. You know. They don't get enough. Uh, they don't get enough reimbursement. And yet somehow, it was a sunny story inside the Westin Hotel in San Francisco. Explain that difference. Well, I th- I think that the, the the way to think about hospitals is you know they serve different audiences and they're going to sell to the audience that they're in front of. And in the case of hospitals, a lot of their financial um, resources are in bonds and bonds that they can issue the, to, to do the, to deploy the capital they want. And a lot of those bond holders, again, all the money people are out in JP or at the JP Morgan conference in San Francisco in the hopelessly dated Westin hotel on union square. And, you know, when you're, when you are, um, when you're talking to the bondholders, you're really selling stability and the not and the, and the not losing money. That's different than than I think the 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 conversation hospitals would likely have with their um, nonprofit fiduciaries and the communities they serve and the regulatory authorities that establish the price for which they're whether it's a a test or a surgery, how how they get paid. Um, I mean, the reality is, even though those bonds will be paid back because they hospitals are very good credits in the sense that they have the federal and state government is probably their their um, you know largest uh, customers, and for the for the employers, they're typically paying more. Uh, they are su- struggling. Their margins have been compressed. I think a lot of the staff is burnt out. And you've got a, a relatively limited capacity of doctors and nurses. And you've got a baby boom, 10,000 people hitting Medicare age every day. That's going to put pressure on a system that can't really endlessly expand its doctors and nurses. And I do think that that's a, you know, that's a, the, 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 you can, you can actually, um, walk and chew gum at the same time, David. Well, not, uh, no, I can't. Bond but holders, the, yeah. <laughs> the bondholders need to know that they're not going to lose all their money and that the credits and that they're going to get paid back evenly over time. And I think for investors and regulators that we've got to take seriously the challenges that hospitals have, that they're about how sustainable they are in the current reimbursement regime. And frankly, how stable labor is. I think if, if there's one place where, again, I know you don't like artificial intelligence, you don't even no. like using computers. But they, they, that if you could automate and simplify a lot of the back office work for hospitals, and if you could automate a lot of the chart work that nurses and doctors have to do, you'd have a dramatic lift in productivity within the hospitals. And I think uh, you'd also have less burnout and people quitting, the, quitting, quitting, quitting their jobs. John, it's a fair point that you know, the hospitals are selling stability, and that's because they're selling uh, debt not equity. They're not saying we're going to take your money and we're going to, you know, make it 5x or 100x. 
On the other hand, the biotech side, they, 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 that is what they try to promise. Now, they might lose it all. They admit that as well. And one way to measure, coming back to our original point, one way to measure what's the level of optimism coming out of the JP Morgan conference is to see what's happening with those companies that are issuing equity. That is, especially ones that are doing initial public offerings to go on the stock exchange uh, for the first time. And it is notable uh, that after not a lot of companies were going public last year, there's a couple that have filed actually since the JP Morgan conference. And there were a few that had uh, maybe had originally registered last year and in early January actually filed to go public. And that is that's probably the biggest sign of optimism that there you could find. Yeah, I don't know whether I buy that, David. I think sometimes people are filing because they just don't really have another. I mean, there's there's a there's the theater of 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 market growth and 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 the, and, and of companies taking going public and and uh, and all articles about you know wealth and great new companies. You know, I think there's also the reality that an IPO is largely a financing event. It's a way to shift from a private to public shareholders. And the story and the narrative have to be differently. Your mix of shareholders differs when you go public. And I think the the that that we've because of the 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 long hiatus and the uncertainty in the markets, the long hiatus uh, that that really only that on, there's only been for the last year when interest rates popped and and valuations got complicated because when interest rates go up, how much you pay for a growth asset uh, typically goes down. Uh, and so there's been there, that uncertainty closed the IPO window, the public offering window, or made it really hard to get the the, the valuation or the mark, the value um, that you wanted. And so I think some of these companies that are going public, they just this this is a necessary financing event. I think what's going to be what's going to be a mark of whether the market the market for IPOs is truly healthy, whether this massive source of financing for growth companies is healthy, will be how these companies fare when they go out. I mean, if you recall, the, the 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 market crash was 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 sort of punctuated by uh, a public offering for Crocs, not exactly a high tech, high growth enterprise. Yeah, those ugly looking plastic shoes that you insist on wearing. I mean, I mean, who thought that was a great idea? Well, I think the reality is, public offerings are in many cases a, a, an important financing event, and I think that the fact that people are filing is a good sign. Of the health of the marketplace, and perhaps that prices have stabilized. But I don't. I wouldn't. I don't. I, I don't sit. I don't necessarily think the the window is completely opening. I think the window for IPOs is blinking at us, but it's unclear whether it's going to stay stay open and stay stay large enough for a lot of companies to see it as a valid source of capital. Well, it may be a brief uh, little, you know, opening in the midst of the the winter. But if you look at the kind of companies that are filing, there's uh, the ones that filed. Uh, before JPM, there's a couple oncology companies. There's a gene editing company. They really are showing some, you know, exciting technology. If it were to work, that would make a major difference uh, for patients, much more than the uh, the Crocs might. And the two that just filed, one is Alto Neurosciences. That's bringing precision medicine to the brain. There's a lot of uh, neurological uh, diseases, psychiatric diseases that, because of bad biomarkers, you know, you've had good drugs that haven't made it to market. They're going to take another swing at that. You've got Caverna Therapeutics, which is focused on autoimmune disease, which has become uh, much more prevalent. So if, if I think it's positive that you've got companies that are innovative, they're addressing real problems that I think we agree if they could, if they are successful, 
using science, mostly not artificial intelligence, although some of it is that, if they could be successful, it's going to make a big difference for patients and a, and a good financial return for investors. Uh, what's wrong and with that's, that? And that's, and that's really what JP Morgan was focused on is, is, is selling the story that the markets, public and private, are ready to support innovation. I'm not convinced. I'm glad you are. But then you didn't even go. Yeah, I didn't go, John. Are you glad you went? I am. I am. Because I think you one always find, learns a few things, meets some old friends. And, you know, it always, you know, I always come back with more, more questions and thoughts than I, than I went with. It's a bit of a, it's a, a bit tough right after the, the Christmas break and when you want to really be starting your business. But no, I, I, I think it was worth doing. And I think you should consider going next year, David. Great. Well, one way or another, it is good to start off the year uh, looking ahead and being positive and getting recharged. And Care Talk is a good way to do that. And I hope actually people will join our LinkedIn page where they get to interact with us and read up about, read up about all the latest healthcare news. In any case, I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the president of Walgreens Health. If you liked what you heard or you didn't, we'd love you to subscribe on your favorite service and leave us a review. They make a huge difference in spreading the word on Care Talk.